Hello and welcome back. I'm Joe. And I'm TJ. And you're listening to Season 5 of Focus Ed Podcast, where we cover all things education to help you lead better and grow faster by staying focused. Focus Ed is a collaborative program of work with our partners from the Delaware Department of Education and Wilmington University. We record each episode with a live audience and then blast them out to you from our website, theschoolhouse302.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and more. Don't forget to follow us at theschoolhouse302.com to learn more about when episodes are recorded and for more school leadership resources. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Focus Ed, and we can't wait to hear from you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Focus Ed, where each episode we invite expert guests to join us. And this episode, we are very excited to have Sam Crone with us with a focus on creating and leading thriving teams in schools. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Great to be here tonight. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Sam? And I probably should also note that Sam is coming to us from just south of London. So we truly appreciate you being here. With, with the rain and everything. <laughs> From a long ways away, Sam Crome is a school leader, currently a deputy head teacher and director of education for a multi-academy trust in Surrey. He's been a head of year, head of department, head of sixth form, lead teaching and learning, and most recently lead pastoral teams across a secondary school. For the last few years, Sam has studied high-performing teams, trying to better understand how teams can become more than the sum of their parts. He regularly blogs, speaks, and works with schools regarding their teams, helping educators to maximize their effectiveness. He remains convinced that this is an area that needs more attention and exploration. He's accredited coach, loves working with coaches to help them realize their potential and make strides towards their career goals. He's also the author of The Power of Teams, How to Create and Lead Thriving School Teams. All right, Sam, we want to talk about the book to start, Power of Teams. We mentioned in your bio... Joe talked about that's the the message we want to send to our leaders, to our listeners today. I want to start with a simple question. Why did you feel the need to write this book about teams? What is it about teams that was missing from the things that you see in schools that says, you know what? Leaders need to be able to create and lead thriving schools, and we need this book in the world. Great question. It's been the first sort of nine, 10 years of my teaching career working in a very high-performing school in terms of outcomes, the one on the top in the country, uh, great grades. And, and that kind of culture was very fast paced and very kind of immersive, but it made me act in sort of what I call sort of lone wolf mode, which is right, I've got to prove that I get the best exam results and I've got to make sure that my teams are the ones that dot, 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 dot. And after a while, I just, just burnt out. And I was thinking about leaving the professional together because I didn't feel like I was in an environment that really celebrated groups working together. It was more like a lot of people climbing over each other to get to the top, but, it, you know, a little bit like that. And at the time I was uh, sort of in my late 20s, early 30s, and I started thinking about more about who I was as a person. You know, you start to reflect a bit. I went back to my early years. I was adopted as a baby and was kind of exploring that area of my identity and sort of realized that actually what I, I wanted a bit more was a bit more community and a bit more belonging. And that paralleled with reading I read a lot of sports books so I read you know some 
sports books from the States and from, from Europe. And I was like, right, sports is very dysfunctional in some areas. And I've done work for sports teams since, and they are, they can be really dysfunctional, but also they do actually have a lot of merit to them in terms of the way they bridge together quite a disparate group of people. And I thought, right, there must be more out there that can teach us about school teams, which again is a weird and wacky world in itself, isn't it? Very random world of education teams. But if, if we can look at one sector of sports, there must be more evidence from a different places. So I just started reading lots of academic research, talking to different companies and sectors, interviewing school leaders to try and work out how do we get the most out of our school teams. That was the start point really of the whole project. And the last thing I'll say is I don't know, I'd love to learn more from you in this during this conversation actually, because in, in England, I've been on tons of leadership courses and they all obsess over what kind of leader are you? What's your leadership style? What's a leader versus a manager? I'm like, I don't care about this crap. <laughs> I want to know how do a group of people who all have different experiences and views and expertise come together and move forward in a really seamless direction? That's what I really want to learn about school leadership and school improvement, not just about me, me, me. And that's that's where I got to. That's why I started uh, researching for the book. It's a lot of great information. I wouldn't mind if you could just tell us a little bit more about your journey from after that nine-year period period because I, I that's an interesting space that it sounds like that you were in both professionally and personally. I think a lot of people have been there. I'm really intrigued to hear you say that in a high performing school, you wanted to leave, right? Like, but it just was missing that teamwork, that collaboration and what you said, that lone wolf. So why did you stay? Did you go somewhere else? And did the research start to help you as an individual? And even personally, uh, I appreciate if you would go into that a little bit. I, I appreciate the vulnerability that you're mentioning about being adopted and things like that. So would you mind just spending a little time in that space? Yeah, of course, Joe. Um, I actually did leave that school. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to sort of trash the school because it was a really great school in lots of ways, but it was probably about me in that time in that place wasn't working uh, so I, I changed schools um went to quite a similar profile of school in my local area still and found just the most amazing community there and that kind of went hand in hand with what I was looking for and that's kind of that was my main driver for the change really was to get more out of myself by being in a more of a community environment and I think that in turn has helped me get more out of other people as well so that yeah I did make a change and I think that was really important for me and kind of haven't looked back since then but there was one point where I was considering my place in the the education sector altogether so all of these things aligned at one point a change of schools the actively looking at my own identity the trying and then and then sort of lockdown hit as well just after that but one of the other things that I did during that time that I think was really important was learn how to coach and I did a few coaching courses uh, some a month long one was nine months long with growth coaching international which is a big Australian outfit and the, the process of learning to coach and I'm not going to get into the whole instructional coaching versus non-directive form of coaching kind of debate that we're having in the UK a lot at the moment but the form of coaching that I learned to coach with was more non-directive and facilitative and it was more about coaching people with their professional goals and growth rather than um, specific elements of their teaching and, and that sort of thing. By training to be a coach and coach other people I kind of learned how to coach myself so I think I had a big kind of period of growth there that I would say really aided my professional and personal outlook. Maybe this is a selfish question but I just love the research in the field and it sounds like you've done a ton of it on, on teamwork. Can we dive 
into that? Maybe, you know, some of the things that you uncovered when you wrote the book or just learning about teamwork and what works. We have a ton of school leaders listening. We have people here in the live audience and they're going to want to know about teams and how to better form their teams and lead their teams. And I'd love to hear what you have to say about both your experience and the research you've done. Oh yeah, great. Right idea. 25 year olds would have probably been a bit sneery if someone had said, hey, you know what really works for teams? High levels of belonging, high levels of trust, high levels of psychological safety. That really works for teams. I think if, if someone had told me that 10 or 15 years ago, I'd be like, you can succeed in, with teams without giving them having high levels of belonging and, and all that kind of stuff. And what I uncovered through, through the kind of years of research that I've done is that there's a huge amount of robust empirical evidence that shows us that teams, they get better results, but they also have higher attention, better morale, high levels of subjective well-being when they are working within teams with high levels of belonging. And that's not just a nice to have or a feels good thing anymore. It's backed up by huge amounts of research. And, you know, you will know very well, Dr. Amy Edmondson is one of the biggest kind of proponents of some of that research for psychological safety. So I think that was one thing that made me really happy was that it wasn't just kind of confirmation bias. When you go through the research, teams that feel like they belong, they were the ones that work together the best. There's just no doubting that. So that was one of the biggest things that I uncovered and I write a lot about in the book. The second thing that I found really interesting that I wasn't expecting to find so much was a huge body of research on team debriefs. And those are called different things in, in different places. Like the military call them after action reviews, like AARs, and there's loads of different ways of you know talking about team debriefing. But again, there's a massive body of research that says that if you regularly debrief in a low stakes, scheduled in advance, constructive process where everyone gets a chance to participate and where mistakes and failures are viewed as an inevitable bump in the road that helps you learn and grow together, those teams will far outperform the teams that very rarely debrief or evaluate or the teams that respond to a mistake or a drop in performance and then have their debrief at that moment. That was really interesting for me and something that I didn't do in my own practice very much, but I sure as hell do, do a lot more of it now. Sam, I think that's critical about the debrief. It's not something we do very often. One thing I would tie that back to is your question about you know leadership and management. Good leaders will do exactly what you just said. You know, They will set up the time to make sure they're employing something as effective as you described like the AAR, right? Right. Your management side makes sure that happens by organizing and structure and time appropriate. But if it's not without the goal of the team and team building and becoming more effective, like you said, that can all be to waste as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all kind of symbiotic, isn't it? It all goes hand in hand with, the, with each other. And that's why uh, when people kind of ask me what, what the most important part of team, like I'm always slightly hesitant because you can set great team goals or do great team debriefs, but without the mechanisms in place or without the culture in place to do that in a safe environment, then none of those things will be as impactful as they could be otherwise where everything kind of clicks together and, and intertwines. So Sam, that leads me to this question real quick. And this is from the research, 90% of employees believe that teamwork is critical. You know, that's evidence-based. They believe that it contributes to the organization's success, but only 25% consider that their teams are actually effective. Why is that? And do you have a remedy? Well, that's a big question. But I think we can all appreciate, can't we? So even just if I'm looking at my screen now, there are four of us that I can see on my screen. So Joe, TJ, Katie, and me. I can appreciate that all four of us bring something very different to any conversation. We've got different experiences, different 
levels of education or different forms of education, different views. So I can appreciate on paper that if we worked really well together, we would all combine and listen to each other and and ask pertinent questions and therefore we'd use, utilize what we've all brought differently to the room and create something really special. I can visualize that happening. I can see that we should be able to do that. But the problem is if I'm the team leader and every time we meet up, I just give you a list of jobs to do or a list of admin that we go through, you probably don't hold that view for very long that the four of us can do great things together because you've never been given the opportunity to do that. And you've never seen it in actions. You've never actually seen the potential grow. So I think that just goes back to that original statistic that you quoted that we know that that in theory, people should bring different things and it should be a really thriving process. But actually, in reality, we've all been to meetings that don't really achieve very much and that don't really harness the differences of the group. And I think if I think about most of my school team meetings, I would say they don't really harness the different expertise and views in the room and what a waste of time that is. So that's the first thing. The second thing of how do we remedy that <laughs> is a very long, complex process. But I would suggest in schools, if, you, if you're going to say, well, what can schools do? because schools, colleges, universities, when we meet with our teams, those are really precious moments because we can't create more time. We can't say to everyone, hey, I think we're going to calendar three more team meetings this month because we've all got loads of time. It just doesn't work like that. So I think the, the most simple remedy that I can probably give you on the spot is do you plan your team meetings so that they are so full of purpose and give everyone a chance to share and discuss openly so that it was actually worth getting them all together instead of marking papers or calling home parents or planning the next lesson? Was it worth it? Or did your meeting, was it just a reaction to a load of stuff that happened that week and you just tick off a few jobs along the way? Obviously, that's a very simple answer to a very complex question. But that's the thing that I start with a lot of school teams, um, just to get a bit of momentum going. How do you use your meeting time first and foremost so people start to believe that the team can do great work together because they see it and they live it in their, in their, their experience of that team's life? You know, Joe, this wasn't on purpose, but now I feel like we're getting into Liz City talking about the need for meetings to get better and pre-planning. Todd brings it up and we even link back to what Liz said. And now Sam's bringing it up again. And none of that was on purpose here. But for the leaders listening, like this has to be a nugget that we take away about planning and pre-planning for these team meetings. I mean, am I crazy, Joe, or is, is that just happening naturally? No, I, I thought the same exact thing, especially Liz City jumped in my head as you were talking, Sam. And really, I love the idea that it's a precious moment. You know, if you do look at this through that lens, I love that phrase because you're not taking advantage of the time. It's it's precious. We don't have this time. So that so full of purpose, you know, when we get together, it's productive. I love it. And no, and I, I think that's a theme though, TJ, we're seeing. People are getting together, they are meeting, but is it worthwhile? And that is the question. Is it making a difference? I even thought, because we had a couple meetings this week that went longer than I thought. I wonder if I surveyed them and asked that question, was it worth it? I might be afraid to get the responses, but it might be a good question to ask. I have two more things. If you could maybe remind me to talk about surveys later on, because I'm a big believer in little and often surveys. My big, it's not really a secret, but my big secret weapon for meetings is starting with a bit of short uh, team learning at the beginning of the meeting. So I'll just give you like a concrete example. So when I took over the pastoral team that I lead now, so it's about 15, 16 people, year one, two weeks before every meeting, I would photocopy a blog or a chapter of a book that was really pertinent to our work or our leadership growth. And I'd ask everyone to read it over two weeks before the meeting. And then we'd spend 10 minutes sharing and discussing how it could apply to our practice. And then in year two, I asked everybody to sign up to a rota and choose a book 
and then we I bought them that book and then they took charge of the first 10 minutes of every meeting etc etc now we had a blast learning together and but the thing is the reason why it's a secret weapon is because later on in that meeting you might have to discuss an area of your team's practice that is quite sensitive to some people because they're invested in it or, or it's their thing and you might have to have a little bit of a disagreement a bit of sort of you know task related conflict over some aspects of your team's processes if the first 10 minutes of your meeting was spent enjoying a discussion or a debate over something that wasn't personal or sensitive to people it kind of loosens the shackles and breaks the ice a bit when you later on in the meeting do have to have another learning discussion but about something closer to home so, so that that model really works for me i think the rationale for that sam is actually the incredible part is that it's not just about the learning but it's about the enjoyability of it and that it's not something sensitive to people because it's new to everybody and we're all vulnerable and learning in this space together to start the meeting it's the psychological aspect of it that I think is genius. I do want to go back to planning before we get to surveys, but I, just a comment here is that I think that some of this stuff is emerging because of the sense of what Joe was talking about before, the sense of our time being so limited. And I think it's even more important post-COVID when people are like, if this doesn't impact the future and my work and the way I'm thinking and doing, I don't want to be a part of it. And so it's even more, I think, of a hot button now than ever before and probably why it's coming up over and over again. You mentioned the simple remedy of the planning time. We've heard that before. I want to talk about the how. I want to double click on planning. Lots of leaders on this call. So what's that look like? I make my agenda. I send my agenda out. Dr. City talked about doing some pre-meeting homework or something. What do you consider planning when you say the leader needs to plan for it to be an effective meeting other than getting your article and planning for that first 10 minutes of learning, which is fantastic. People can implement that right away. What else does it mean to plan as a leader and how much time do I need to set aside to do that? Great question. Well, the team has to believe that once the meeting is over, that things actually happen and that the leader or whoever's you know taking charge of certain parts of the meeting will do what they say they're going to do and that therefore the team is making progress. So you can have a really you know energetic, passionate meeting where you learn stuff together. But if you turn up to the next meeting a week or a month later and nothing has happened with some of the other stuff you talked about you know oh, well, what's, the, what's the point of doing this so for me the, the first port call is did you minute the last meeting really well and therefore have you then been able to give the team a progress update on the things that you talked about because some things can't be solved overnight so you can share successes oh look last time we talked about this and I managed to get this done so this will be easier for us next time but also you just have to sort of share some of the, the struggle and the, and the process so look last time we talked about this these things in motion but we still need to do this this and this has anyone got any ideas that could help with that? So then people can see that actually the things you talk about in the meeting have a then a, actually exist outside of the, the meeting space and that you're working on stuff with them and for them. So I think that's step one of the planning for me is have we followed up on all the threads from the last meeting so that people actually believe this is a good use of their time for next time and things are genuinely going on. And the final aspect of planning, because I think you know, we don't need to talk about agendas because it's kind of teaching people to suck eggs, but sometimes as a, as a team leader, you just need to go around the classrooms and offices of your team members and just say, look, hey, have you got anything you'd like to contribute to the next meeting or anything you think we're missing at the moment? Because not everyone throws their hand up and speaks in front of a group every single time. So some of your work is before you chair the next meeting is just going around having a one-to-one -one with 
people and sort of getting a feel for how they what they're thinking um, because that might inform part of the meeting that you you hadn't planned but it could be a really important part of it really like that idea Sam of just getting a pulse seeing where people are um, you had asked us not to forget about surveys so I certainly don't want to forget about surveys would you mind delving into that world a little bit yeah so we have um, I'm not selling a product here but I just want to give a bit of context we have a, an app in England called Teacher Tap, and every day at 3.30 in the afternoon Teacher Tap loads three questions for, for all teachers in the UK to it takes up 30 seconds you just click it's like would you say behaviour in your school has got better or worse in the last year you know better worse and you just tick it and about 10,000 teachers do it a day and it's really great data I, I quote it all the time brilliant app but we my school now subscribes to their school based service so we pay a bit of money for that and we've applied the same little and often process to surveying school staff so we don't do 12 month or 6 month surveys where people build up all these kind of historic views or feelings we survey every 2 weeks like 2, 3, 4 questions takes like a minute to do so we're constantly trying to get the pulse of the whole staff and the individual teams as well so I and you said it earlier on Joe sometimes you if you want to know big answers you have to ask big questions and you know sit down with your cup of coffee take a deep breath read the survey and then own it in front of your staff and say look we asked you these questions recently this is how you felt we want to make some changes or we want to acknowledge that by doing this this and this you know the whole like you said we did sort of thing but if you do that more regularly then again everyone in the building believes that this is a school or an organization that is trying to move in the right direction and it just again I keep talking about this belief the team has to believe that things can improve and that things will get better so regular surveys that are then fed back to the staff are really really important and that could be a small team of five or it could be the whole 200 staff or, or whatever it's interesting the way the universe works Sam in our book building a winning team we created a six-part survey about school culture that's meant to do exactly what you're describing it's definitely a before and after review of the culture like in the beginning of the year to the end of the year but the six pieces are meant to be used individually throughout the year to test the culture after the show love to send you a copy of that and get your take on those questions as compared to the ones that you're using with teachers in your space i want to switch gears just a little bit with a couple of minutes left here in our time to ask a few of our traditional questions that we ask our listeners love to get tidbits and nuggets and places to go from our guests and the first thing i want to ask always is about resources what are your favorite resources to support teaching learning and leadership in schools you've done the research you wrote the book on teams where else can we go of course we're going to give away 10 copies of your book to some listeners today and everybody else on the call is going to buy it from amazon before they hang up but we would like to hear what resources you go to well i think this is again this is not a product that i'm trying to sell because the no product exists but i think in you're just about you're just starting over the last couple of years to get research ed in the states and the research ed network in the uk for me has been transformational to the way that i engage with research so they release books which are written with lots of experts there are conferences but it's the networks beyond the conferences that, that have really been valuable to me so more and more now i find that if i want to keep my finger on the pulse with educational research i look at some of the people that i followed from the research head sort of network and you know people like tom sherrington in the uk and, and reading his blogs and his books but there are lots of other people as well and, and that's just it started it was, it was a fairly grassroots it's grown quite a lot but that's how i kind of stay really really up to date is by looking at research ed people <laughs> because i've learned so much from them both inside and outside of the conference building but that's that's an invaluable resource for me i know it's not one product but it's been been great for me and, and rejuvenating my love of professional development and learning with other educators sam how about when you think about your role in education 
organization, your book on teams, what is the impact you're looking to make? You know, what, what are you looking to achieve, you know, in the next few years? And we have, I don't know if you have it in the States, but we have now this system in the, in the UK where we have multi-academy trusts, where you have an organization and they oversee lots of schools together. And obviously those schools can have a, enjoy a better economies of scale because you might have 12 small schools clubbed together under one banner and then, then they suddenly have access to HR and legal and all that loads of stuff like that. So um, I now work as well as my school within our trust. So I'm really looking forward to having more impact on a, on a, we've got 15 schools and counting in our trust at the moment and having more impact across a whole range of places, but also just enjoying kind of working with other educators across the UK well, and obviously the US now as well with you guys, <laughs> just doing more talks and more ongoing work with schools and, and education and organizations just to share and learn, learn from each other really. Sam, if you were going to, we talked a lot about adults today and building teams, doing work in schools to have better meetings. That's a lot of adult-centered work, which is great. If you were going to improve the student experience in schools, what would that look like? Yeah, well, I'm pastoral lead at my school, so I'm, I'm the sort of vice principal and I oversee student behavior, culture, well-being. For me, if you want students to get the best experience, the foundation layer for that is a calm school with positive behavior culture, disruption-free lessons, mutual respect between the adults and the kids. You can work on curriculum and research-based teaching all day long, but if the, the kids aren't behaving or they don't buy into the culture of the school, then you're wasting all your time. So for me, that's how you get a positive experience. Calm, predictable learning environments where everyone feels safe. Every time they walk into the gates every morning, the whole day they're there, they leave and they feel safe and happy because it's a very disruption-free learning experience. That for me is step one before you kind of, before you do anything else. It's interesting. Sam, that you mentioned this idea of safety, because that also makes me think of the power of teams, you know, not only physical safety, but psychological safety that needs to occur among students and staff. I wanted to just go back and draw a through line. Does teacher tap, has that revealed anything that would help you achieve what TJ had asked about like improving the student experience through what teachers are reporting out? I just want to circle back to that because it does seem like like a very powerful way to get real-time data, almost like a formative tool, a formative assessment for teachers. Yeah, so we can, I mean, obviously there's the TeacherTap, the public app, and then there's, there's TeacherTap, the way we use it within schools where we can survey teachers, students, and, and parents as well. But probably the problem with the public version of the app is that so many school contexts are, are very different, and then there are sort of different attitudes towards schooling on the continuum between sort of progressive and traditional. So it's difficult to get sort of definitive data when you look at the national data on on what teachers view as the ultimate or the optimal student experience. But certainly we we survey our students on, on what they value in school and we try and use our sort of student bulletin to be honest with students about what we're working on as a school at the moment and what we want their support with as well because it always comes down to building from the positive, not the punitive. So we try and use some of the feedback from students and then level with them. Look, we're really working on this as a school at the moment. This is going to mean all of us have access to dot, 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 dot. So let's all come together and do this. And that's, that's how we sort of use that kind of data. So. That's great. And then that that also builds that collective environment. It makes people have that sense of belonging that you talked about. And really, ultimately, the kids are almost working as a team too to create the environment that you're describing. This has been fantastic, Sam. We really appreciate your time. Well, I took pages of notes here on what you've been saying that we'll put into the show notes. We'll link to a number of the things that you've mentioned. Is there anything else that you would like to add 
add before we close a request of the audience, a call to action? No, I'm not going to make any heartfelt appeals, but I am just going to say even the style of this conversation and the way you, how thoughtful you guys are obviously as leaders, I think um, my advice on your listing would be to lean into networks like this, because this is what will get you through. <laughs> this is what will turbocharge you, pick you up off the floor on those difficult days is having networks like this that are just really committed to learning and sharing. So it's, I've had a real blast. Yeah, I think uh, you guys are all lucky to be part of this kind of networking experience by the, by the looks of it. Yeah, thank you for that. We agree. We couldn't agree more. We have to lean into this work. We have to support one another. We have to have networks of people who come together. This has been fantastic. You've heard it here again on Focus Ed. Sam Chrome, everyone, we're going to do a virtual round of applause from our live audience. And as always, don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcast, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.